This week on Plot Points Podcast, we discuss why your dialogue don't sound no good, how politics and war is hell, but ultimately how to rise above the noise. The noise! The noise! This is Plot Points Podcast. Hey, welcome. This is Plot Points Podcast. I'm uh, sitting at a table, a wonderful place in downtown Newport Beach with my co-host, Mary Claire Anderson. Hi. And uh, our engineer slash producer slash co-host, Toby Walwork. Hello. And uh, we've, had a, uh, we've had a couple um, weeks without Mary Claire because of um, uh, previous obligations, and you're, uh, we're, we're welcoming her back for the first time in two episodes. Mm-hmm. So how are you I'm doing? Back. You're, you're back. <laughs> we missed you. I mean, we had some great, uh, great co- – Larry was great and Shadia was great, but uh, – we missed our, our little Mary Claire. I missed you guys too. I hate saying that, but <laughs> but I did. I was listening to all of the episodes and I was like, oh, really want to chime in there. Mm. Um, don't agree with that or <laughs> or um, or love this commentary and want to be a part of the discussion. So glad to be back. I had a shot of espresso this morning and <laughs> ready to go. When's it going to kick in? No, it's kicked in. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> So, hey, Toby, how was your week? Uh, good week, busy week. Uh, okay, I'm, I'm working on a couple of projects that um, uh, they take up a lot of time. Mm-hmm. I, I would, I'm not trying to dangle a carrot. I can't talk about no, what no, they are. No. I just, but they, they, they require the focus, the, the part of your brain that you would normally give to your own creative pursuits. So it's very fulfilling in that respect, but also exhausting. So. Yeah, in case you guys don't know, Toby's a professional uh, editor, and he does he directs and writes and stuff. But right now, he's working for a uh, professional company, a real company that's uh, that's giving him benefits and stuff. And uh, he's uh, he's doing this amazing work that he never talks about. So we're basically just assuming it's amazing. We don't really know. And, and I'm definitely not a hitman for the uh, mafia. <laughs> Although if they have dental, I'm available. <laughs> so these are the doldrums too of um, of uh, the movies. So I don't know if there's anything coming up that anybody's dying to see. But um, Atomic Blonde and um, uh, the Emoji Movie did not do well this past week, box office wise. It's pretty poorly reviewed. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so. Yeah, I like. I, I want to see both of them. To tell you the truth, I'm, I'm just fascinated by the idea you're taking a group of anim of. of Emojis. I mean, I, I wish I could think like that. So, it's an interesting concept. I mean, I think people were having some problems with the fact that there was a lot of branding that was going on within uh, the movie, as opposed to maybe like a natural story about emojis hanging out. I'm not sure what the plot line is, but um. well, I mean, you know, when you look at Legos, the Lego movies are fantastic. Um, there, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean was a huge success. Mm-hmm. They just did number five. I mean, there have they have historically been. Good, well, and bad. Obviously, I haven't seen the Emoji movie, but I probably had the same uh, anticipation before the Lego movies. Mm. Right. So, to be fair, it could be a fine yeah, film. Yeah, it could be surprising. It's just on its face. It looks like, uh, you know, yeah, your, you kids are, always... your kids are stuck in their phones all the time anyway. Why don't we stick them in this movie? 
Well, for they two hours they had a good cast. They had a good voice cast. It just I, I think it just didn't get the marketing it needed. I didn't see it anywhere. That's funny because I feel like I've seen it everywhere. Oh, <laughs> I was like, I can't escape the emotion. You haven't driven me. by a bus stop in the last. <laughs> no, no. I meant I, my reference point would be television, and I watch mm-hmm. I, lately. I've been watching CNN almost exclusively, so it's not really the demographic. Maybe not catering so, to that yeah, audience, so. whereas I'm on Bravo pretty much exclusively, and <laughs> I see that. I see well, yeah, Housewives of, uh, of uh, Orange you, County <laughs> of Anaheim. Uh, <laughs> and it does seem to be the audience they're after. Yes. So I don't know what that says about me, but um, but hopefully, I mean, yeah, hopefully the story is there. I think that's always what makes the difference is obviously yeah, the script. Absolutely, and that's so, a good point. It's about the story. Yeah, because yeah. I think the Lego Movie really succeeds there. Um, I haven't seen the Lego Batman movie yet, but um, I just love I Will think Arnett. That's different- I'm I do Batman. Too. He's so good at that. <laughs> Actually, that does bring up a. a- Something I wanted to ask about the the other film, the uh, Atomic gosh, Blonde. Atomic Blonde. I want to call it Suicide Blonde. The Atomic <laughs> Blonde movie. Uh, I've seen the trailer. It looks great. Has there been a lot of commercials for it? I haven't seen a lot of ads. more for that. I've seen more for that than for Emoji. But again, you know, I'm watching that's CNN. CNN. Crowd. Yeah, <laughs> they just want to see a lady kick some ass. And there's well, no I think that's that. how it's being marketed too. So I'm a little bit interested. I have no idea what that movie is about. Like I couldn't probably tell you from somebody, the trailer. But somebody saw, yeah. somebody saw it and said <laughs> it was her trying to be the next James Bond. So she's a very capable assassin slash... Yeah. And she's uh, played that character before, so I'm interested yeah, maybe uh, to understand how that movie Fla- sets it apart. Eon Flux, that was the only thing I could Ooh. think that, of. Well, maybe in Furiosa and Mad Max as well. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but Mad Max, well, yeah, she, but she's, that woman is physical. That woman can do... I read an article, or I saw a video about her and the stuntmen, and they said there was never a time where she could not carry mm-hmm. out what they asked her to do. And there was a lot of martial arts and, and fighting in that scene. So this week, um, I, I was going to write, a, um, and I, I kind of failed at this. I, there was a writer who just died who was part of the blacklist in Hollywood uh, when Dalton Trumbo was uh, part of that blacklist also. And I forgot to get his name. I, I, I've just had a really bad week because I've been without uh, Internet. Thank you, Spectrum, by the way. We love you. Um, but I did a profile this week on Dalton Trumbo. Um, and if you even have even a passing acquaintance with Hollywood and American history, you've no doubt heard of Senator Joseph McCarthy and the blacklist. It was, no pun intended, a dark time in America where some people saw communist threats around every corner. Paranoia, ma- paranoia made way to histrionics and hysteria, which culminated with the congressional hearings presided over by Senator McCarthy. A list eventually identified 151 actors – directors and writers who were thought to be a threat to America. Some of them were brought before the Senate subcommittee and many were blacklisted after that, not allowed to work at their chosen profession. And while this may seem like a tale from decades past, the seeds of this are again being seen in today's America. More on that later in the discussion. I don't want to get political, but there are some, some disturbing trends. The blacklist, uh, the previous blacklist, started with screenwriter Dalton Trumbo. He was a high-level target for the House Un-American Activities Committee, or HUAC, and it did pretty much end with him in the late 50s after a triumphant movie he wrote uh, was recognized. Trumbo, the movie, detailed his story well. Let's recap a bit of his life and his accomplishments. Like many of us, Trumbo's writing began in college. He attended USC. Go Trojans. For months, he worked as a bread wrapper while being rejected by just about everyone. According to Mental Floss... Trumbo penned six novels and close to 90 short stories during his bakery years, and publishers rejected each one. And every time I see that, that kind of thing, I'm just so buoyed by that. I think I've mentioned that before. I just love the idea that these wonderfully accomplished writers failed miserably at some point in their career. I don't know if that makes you guys happy, but it certainly makes me happy. 
His professional writing career did finally begin as an article writer for such well-considered magazines as the Saturday Evening Post, McCall's, and Vanity Fair. He eventually became a reader for Warner Brothers, and this opened some doors for him as a screenwriter. Trumbull was political, even when writing the novel Eclipse, written in a style called social realism, which I had to look up. Do you guys know what that is? Uh, actually, idea? I do. I'm a fan of it. So Are you? Yeah. Okay, cool, because I didn't know. Um, social realism style and subject matter draws attention to the working class and poor. An example in art would be Grant Wood's famous painting, American Gothic, which depicts a farmer and his wife standing side by side with a man holding a pitchfork. There's really great discussions on this painting online. It just so uh, if you look at it, the woman is just I don't know what that look expression on her face is, but it's really incredible. Russian dictator Joseph Stalin institutionalized a form of this, also called social realism, which became the official art form of Soviet communism. And although the two forms weren't directly connected, Trumbo made that connection, and his political leanings began to cause him tremendous issues. Trumbo's anti-war novel, Johnny Got His Gun, a grim tone about a, tome about a man who loses his face, limbs, and voice during World War I, won a National Book Award and began to get Trumbo noticed in many arenas. Already ensconced in the Hollywood mainstream through his work with Warner Brothers, Trumbo began working in earnest as a screenwriter around 1937. His rise as a screenwriter was steady and increasingly more A-listed as he turned out films. According to Wikipedia, quote, during the 40s, Trumbo became one of Hollywood's highest paid screenwriters at about $4,000 a week. And I, I, was, I don't know what that is in today's terms, but that's a lot of money back then. He did 30 Seconds Over Tokyo, Our Vines Have Tender Grapes, and Kitty Foyle, for which he earned a nomination for an Academy Award for Adapted Screenplay. Problems began when Trumbo, reflecting his interest and sympathies in the working class that had been with him for many years, became interested in the Communist Party, which he joined in 1943. Trumbo believed in isolationism, and as mentioned, he was anti-war to begin with. He didn't want America involved in World War II. His anti-war book from the late 30s, Johnny Got His Gun, was scheduled for reprinting during the early 40s. It was put on hold by agreement with Trumbull and his publisher because Trumbull was receiving unwanted letters supporting anti-Semitism and a reconciliation and negotiated peace with Nazis and Adolf Hitler, who was at the time was rampaging through Europe. When Trumbull reported these letters to the FBI, they came not for the letters, but basically for him. He was now on the focused radar of the U.S. government for his support of communism. Trumbull continued to argue for the communist cause through his writing. An article he published detailed that Russia would be more afraid of us than we would of, quote-unquote, the Red Menace. This came to the attention of publisher of The Hollywood Reporter, William L. R. Wilkerson, who named Trumbull and several other writers as communist sympathizers. This became known as Billy's Blacklist. The House Un-American Activities Committee used this list to question Trumbull and nine others as to whether Hollywood had planted communist propaganda in films. The writers refused to answer any of the questions, including naming names of others they knew in the Communist Party, and they were cited for contempt of Congress. They lost a legal appeal, and Trumbull served nearly a year in federal prison. Trumbull said, quote, as far as I was concerned, it was, completely just, it was a completely just verdict. I had contempt for Congress, and I have contempt for several since. While in prison, the MPAA blacklisted Trumbo and the others unless they publicly disavowed communism under oath. They also refused to do this mostly on principle. Trumbo left the U.S. and moved to Mexico City with his wife and a friend. As the movie Trumbo details wonderfully, although not entirely accurately, Trumbo, who was able to earn a living under, unable to earn a living under his own name, wrote under a pseudonym. Actually, he used mostly beards, uh, fronts. Uh, he used other people, other writers who weren't blacklisted for B-movie studio the King Brothers. Such great titles as Rocket Ship XM, Emergency Wedding, Terror in a Texas Town, The Green-Eyed Blonde, and The Brothers Rico. 
30 movies in all, most of which, according to Trumbo, weren't very good. In some cases, Trumbo's participation in these films was not revealed until 50 years later. In 56, 1956, Trumbo wrote a film that was pretty good for the King brothers called The Brave One, which won an Academy Award for Best Story. Robert Rich, a name derived from the nephew of one of the kings, was credited with the writing instead of Trumbo. Since Trumbo couldn't show up for the award, the next day several different imposters saying they were Robert Rich suddenly appeared to claim it. And that's a funny moment in the movie Trumbo. That's humorous, of course, but seriously, imagine winning one of the highest awards for achievements in your profession, something you've worked decades and countless hours to achieve and not being acknowledged for it. Trumbo's blacklist days began to come to an end when director Otto Preminger tapped Trumbo to adapt the Leon Uris book Exodus, which was nominated for and won many awards. Preminger made sure that it was widely known that Trumbo had written the screenplay. Following Exodus came Spartacus. Do you know who directed it? No. Mary Claire? Kubrick. Kubrick. Based on the novel of the same name and starring Kirk Douglas, which really helped end the blacklist through Douglas's influence as a Hollywood A-list actor. Douglas, following Preminger's lead, loudly and widely declared that Trumbo had written the movie. President-elect John F. Kennedy, in fact, famously crossed American Legion picket lines to view the film, also helping to end the blacklisting. Little known fact, the author of the novel for Spartacus, Howard Fast, was also blacklisted and originally had to self-publish the book, which I thought was amazing. Spartacus is listed as number five on the AFI's list of top ten 10 top 10 movies. I screwed that up every time I, every time I did it. Trumbo was reinstated to the Writers Guild and credited for almost anything, everything he had written under the blacklist. When I say almost, I mean that it wasn't until 1975 that Trumbo was recognized and given his Academy Award for The Brave One. And in 1992, Trumbo was given full credit for the movie Gun Crazy, which maybe he didn't even want. But it wasn't until 2011 that Dalton Trumbull was given his true writing credit by the Writers Guild on the amazing, funny, and touching American film classic... Roman Holiday. Roman Holiday. <laughs> Star- you're, so, you're just Old so it. good, Mary Claire. Just, it's <laughs> almost like you have a copy of this. Starring Audrey Hepburn and Gregory Peck. He was posthumously given his Academy Award in 1993, but wasn't acknowledged fully until 2011. That's just nuts. Roman Holiday was nominated for seven Academy Awards and won three, including Best Story, which is now called Best Screenplay. Do you guys seen Roman Holiday? Yeah, I own yeah. it. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. it's a wonderful mm-hmm. film. Yeah, it's got a scooter in it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, the, cool. From the land of scooters, right? <laughs> yeah. Italia. Among some of the well-known peccadillos of Trumbo's was his habit of sitting in a bathtub, a parrot given to him by Kirk Douglas on his shoulder, surrounded by ashtrays. Trumbo smoked six packs of unfiltered cigarettes a day booze and a typewriter and writing scripts while soaking there exists a great photo of this if you want to look it up i think Mm -hmm. it's on the documentary of him trumbo a true writer's writer and unflaggable spirit in all things had 69 writing credits and directed two films including his only johnny got his own johnny got got his gun he excuse me he died in 1976 at the age of 70 and his body was donated to science according to his wishes and science gave it back. No, mm-hmm. I can't think of anyone I know or know of who wanted to be a screenwriter more than Dalton Trumbo. In my mind, he's a true inspiration for when I get whiny and think, this business is just too tough. Don't be ridiculous, I can almost hear him say. Just jump into that bathtub and start writing. So, what do you guys think? Can this happen today? Can the blacklist happen today? I think now that we're in more danger of... Uh Although I mean, we're, we're turning a blind eye a lot to what our government is doing, but I think one of the things that we're, we're living with now is the blacklist was in response to the fear of the Red Scare of, of communism. But now I think studios are much more responsive to 
uh, offending potential customers that I think the the you uh, mean the audience members or well you can call them audience members I think they call them customers I, well, I, mean, I, like, I was just trying to differentiate between them and the actual like like writing a, a villain that's a studio like a owns yeah, a studio well, I mean that's what I, I mean they're more likely to uh, shy away from things that are controversial because so much of uh, the American film market is international now right so mm-hmm. uh, we don't want to upset another country and you know uh, there used to be a time when we understood that movies were uh, a piece of fiction and we had a good guy and we had a bad guy and we, we said the bad guy was from somewhere else mm-hmm. and uh, American xenophobia or whatever you want to call it they were often from outside of uh, our, our borders and they were a different color and that kind of thing that's frowned upon now not because of enlightenment but because they might be from a country that we still want to sell this movie and, and I know that's a little different than what we're talking about here but it's the same uh, no, it's a, it's a it, chilling it, effect. It's the, yeah, it's the chilling effect. It's, it's when you make a decision not because it's creative, uh, not because of its artistic merits, but for an ulterior motive. And uh, to be honest, if it's money, at least we can all agree that that's important. Right. And when it's for political motivation, as it was in the 40s th- through the 50s, uh, that's that's a little more despicable because uh, everybody always loves money, but not everybody always loves the politics of the day. Yeah. Well, I think I mean I don't I I noticed when I start writing the villains have changed because uh, I start writing professionally in ninety 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 two something like that, and it used to be you could do like uh, Chinese villains or you could do. Well, black villains, uh, African-American villains, are almost totally out of the question this day, these days, which is great because, you know, we were, we were creating pimps and, uh, you know, gangsters and stuff. And so, so you're right. There is, a, there is a chilling effect. But I think also it's just a way – about the only safe uh, villain these days is a terrorist. That's pretty much it. You can't. Well, and, but you see, but even that, the only safe is a terrorist, but we're defining terrorists by a very narrow right, set you're of creating parameters. creating a stereotype. Right. They're invariably Middle Eastern. Uh, well, that's are, because terrorists is, are invariably Middle Eastern. That's, I mean, it's in the news. I, I, I take your point, but there's very little you can do about the, the consensus wisdom because delivered by the news. That's what – Well, we can talk about the news on another show, but uh, there are people in this country who fit the physical stereotypes of uh, movie terrorists mm-hmm. and are absolutely not. Mm-hmm. And um, by normalizing – even if you say you're just taking it from the news, by normalizing that profile, I, I think more of what Trumbo was about and social realism was about recognizing that everything was sort of allegorical and you could do something that had uh, that was going to upset somebody and then you were going to ask yourself, why were you upset? And now it seems much safer to not upset anybody and just make sure everyone has a nice time. Uh, people's viewing habits definitely lean towards this. Things that are truly challenging are not doing well uh, as things that are not. And I mean, it's, it's, why, it's why we'll always have sitcoms, but we won't always have smart sitcoms. I want to make the point that I do think that there are some studios uh, that do make a point to correct in the market and to try to tell those stories, whether they're independent producers or whether they're even actors or actresses who've created their own studios to get those stories out. Um, I think people will always look to Hollywood to have that responsibility in some sense to be forward facing when it comes to some of the challenging stories that we're trying to tell, whether it's things like um, even exploring the transgender sort of movement now or the issues that are surrounding that. Um, there have been more movies about that than ever before. That's not something that was TV series. <laughs> ever explored, right. um, you know, previously or 
um, yeah, some of the conflicts that we're experiencing abroad. So I, I do think that there are, are some definite studios that try to think through that. But of course, it is always going to fall back a little bit to money. So but I do think that those stories exist and maybe aren't doing well, but they're out there and getting exposure, which is always what they're trying to accomplish. Right. Yeah, my I, my best advice to writers is to write the villains or the antagonists that you perceive, no matter what their uh, race, color, creed, uh, national origin is, uh, and then let the studios decide how to mitigate that because they will. It's a corporate thing. And so once once you get your script, do the best thing you can creatively. Create your character, create your, uh, your, 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 your antagonist uh, as you see them completely. But as a person, perhaps examine why you see them that way. Mm, that's a good and, point. And that's just, you know, that's just, you know, you want to write that they are Japanese or that they are uh, a terrorist and they wear a, a head a scarf. Ask yourself personally why. Know that it works within the story context. And, and that, that just, that's just how you achieve a degree of personal enlightenment regardless of what the market is. That's a bears. really good point. I could see this happening again simply because of the perception of some of the some of what we see in the, this administration, I mean, they're very broadly they're, they're painting people with very broad strokes. I mean, I'm sorry, but when when the when our president says, "Go ahead and knock the heads of the MS13 suspects against the car of the uh, thing," I just I I just I'm sorry that that bothers me. So so I don't think it could happen exactly like it did with Trumbo because I think there'd be a billion lawsuits and I think there'd be a Supreme Court involved. But I also can see that uh, it can it can be we we need to be uh, conscientious and aware, and we can't assume anything. This week, what are we watching? What are we writing? What are we doing with our lives besides working our tails off for very little money and claim to fame? I'm making good money. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm kidding. I know you are. I'm just kidding. I think we all are. Uh, Toad, what do you uh, what do you what have you been watching or what have you been writing? I know you've been busy. But... I have been busy. Haven't been writing that much. I do want to mention two things I've seen. One, you mentioned earlier, you're a big fan of Will Arnett. Yes. Uh, and, and I watched the Netflix show Faded. Mm-hmm. Faded. Set in L.A. for Venice. Se- second season of Faded. It's very interesting, but it is a bit of a tough recommend because uh, it's not a comedy, but they say it's a comedy. Uh, but there's something very interesting about it because it deals very strongly with uh, characters that are not necessarily good or people who are think they're good or are trying to do good and keep messing things up. And I don't want to go too specifically, but it's very interesting for that. So give it an episode. They're all 30-minute episodes. The whole season, I think, was six episodes. Uh, uh, second season was run. only six. It's real short. But it is interesting because it's uh, and Will Arnett is the star, or absolutely, just- and, a, mm-hmm. and I believe he is the uh, he's the co-creator of the show, and I believe he and uh, his pr- producer buddy are the guys that write it. Oh, cool. So, okay, so it's really like a nice uh, look into the, the 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 creative product of of kind of a, an artist who's given some free reign. Kind of small stakes, Netflix, not a high budget show, but they said, why don't you go ahead and make a, make a show for us and this is what we get and it's, it is interesting. I just read today that Netflix is $20 billion in debt from all the new content material, mm-hmm. yeah, and uh, I mean, I don't, I, that can't be a good thing. I but think that's because we're all sharing the same login and password. <laughs> <laughs> not me, not me. <laughs> Please, FCC, do not contact us. Uh, MC, what are you doing this week? 
Um, well, I – what am I watching? What am I watching? What are you so watching? What are you to, writing? What are you doing um, with doing your life? Doing a little bit of both. Um, I went to go see the opening of Dunkirk. I saw that last Friday in theaters the night that it opened. It um, – I kept trying to find a way to classify it um, because it really isn't anything like I've seen before. And I think it's because Nolan has done a lot of things different here, but done them, in my opinion, probably right. Um, you know, it's a really experimental script. Um, the way that the narrative is written is somewhat complex um, because it doesn't really – it doesn't follow a traditional format. It's um, – I've heard there's no real main character, right? There's no main character. I mean the, the way that the narrative is written, the characters sort of arise from the situations um, and those are the stories that you follow and they sort of guide you through all of the action. But it's – yeah, it's much more of an ensemble narrative, no main character and it's instead a group of people that you're following with just one sort of common goal, which is – getting out of Dunkirk or yeah, surviving. What an amazing um, story. So, yeah, I mean, the geography, the movement, like the main event are all sort of the backbone and the basis for the story. And I really thought he pulled it off. Like, I, and I was surprised. Um, I don't know what I thought it was going to be, but it really is set across like three distinct locations and storylines, and they all converge at some point. But was, was his brother involved, Jonathan? I don't think so. Yeah, no. I think he wrote it himself. No so kidding. just Nolan, and he directed it. And um, I mean, the script, it's probably like 75 pages. It's all action for the right. most part, very little dialogue. But the only thing I thought maybe it reminded me a bit of um, was Mad Max Fury Road, because that's oh, mostly yeah. action as well. Um, and a lot of times, and I had the same reaction to Mad Max as I did for Dunkirk, which is like, how did they do this? Like, yeah. how did they George Miller's tell this story this now. way? Yeah, I mean, I do think a lot of times it's attributed very much so to the director, so yeah. George Miller and then Christopher Nolan. But um, but I really did enjoy it. It's not a traditional war film, but I think it's still a great story and it was really a compelling watch. How about the, doing any writing? You did, you Guess did what? some I last week. I wrote something week. this week. Yeah, yeah. Are you going to do some more this week? Or? Um, I know you have company. I think so. so. I do have company in town, but I do think I'm going to – I have um, some framework. A lot of times it's just because I'm not sure where I'm going and I have to really put in the hours to think through story. And, um, and when I write, I – you know, a lot of times you say this a lot. I mean, do you need this scene or can I cut it out? And I really try to make all my scenes purposeful, of course, but, but ensuring that they're checking all the boxes. So like tone, the stakes, timing, hitting on a character, answering questions, asking more questions. And um, and so I overthink it a lot of times. Yeah, and, and, I, and I think that, that's your main problem. That, that, you do overthink. So a lot of times I'm just like, oh, I'm, I'm going to walk away from this or I'll come back to this <laughs> and then I never come back to it. But um, somebody made a comment in class that I'm really good at starting scripts. Um, Who said that? that that's not a, <laughs> just just that's not a compliment. No, it was, Joe, it was just a comment. Yeah, it was a comment. It wasn't yeah. a compliment. Um, he said it very begrudgingly, though. But um, <laughs> but then and then somebody else was when I was telling them kind of how I think through scripts because I was like these four pages probably took me five or six hours and he was like how and I told him I was trying to check all these boxes and he kind of looked at me like is that what I should be doing? <laughs> and I was like <laughs> and I was like probably but um, but I think you know he's um, a new more newer writer but I was like but again it makes it harder to get it all out and so well the, um, the other thing i you know the, the thing i keep coming back to is you, you, if you're trying to do that that's great and that'll serve you well in the long run but it's going to take you longer to get to a point yeah i mean it's really harder to write a first draft that absolutely. way <laughs> but don't but if you keep doing it you will get better and better and quicker and quicker at it it's like anything else when you first start to do any any activity and i know you've written a couple of things you did a great job mm -hmm. on that uh that short that mm -hmm. one time but um, it's just, time. don't mm -hmm. try, maybe don't try, don't be so critical and just keep doing it. That's all. Quit, quit overthinking. I've told you this before. Quit I overthinking. I mean, it's really in my nature, but, mm -hmm. um, but I know. So it was good to, to submit and get some feedback. It, it's helpful. Um, it's encouraging more so to, to, to see 
or to hear kind of thoughts on where you are and where you're going. But you know, maybe still one get of these days, at, one of these days, we should invite in some of the people from the workshop and just have a roundtable about what workshop, how well it it mm-hmm. helps and stuff. I don't, I don't know if we if that's technically possible, but I would I would think maybe that could be something we could do because I believe in workshop. I I don't think there's any other way to do it. You just get too too involved in yourself if you're doing it by yourself. So uh, when you come into workshop, you hear things you, you never thought you'd right. hear. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'll be careful not to name names, but uh, there's people I know that consider themselves, fancy themselves, uh, you know, filmmakers in the, 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 in the general term. And when I find out that they've never worked a workshop, they've never, you know, it's like they, they think they know what they're doing, but they're completely within a bubble. And mm-hmm. that's just like, well, then, then great. Don't bother trying to make this. It's already perfect right. because, you know, everything else involves, uh, you know, practicality mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. And uh, Well, you're an, you're an editor. You're a professional editor. You certainly yeah, didn't – Yeah, I fix all st- this shit you people don't know how to do. <laughs> no, but I mean you just certainly didn't start out knowing how to do that. You had to learn. You had to train. You had to, you know, have people criti- critique your work. It's a, it's a and, process. And now they're all dead. <laughs> Every last one of them is dead. There's a list. He's crossing yeah. people off. So. One day I'll tell you my uh, my Michael Kahn movie story. Uh oh, Michael Sounds- Kahn, Steven Spielberg's uh, editor of choice, mm. uh, and my sworn enemy. <laughs> okay, that's a we teaser. can talk that's about. A teaser, we folks. could do Remember a segment you on sworn enemies. Yeah. <laughs> I don't. I have a few myself. <laughs> so, um, so what am I? So I've been watching The Office. I don't know if I mentioned this last time on the podcast, but I'm really enjoying truly truly enjoying that after kind of dismissing it the first time i saw it which i don't i don't understand how i did that uh and then the british version i watched a couple of them and i'm not you know this is funny for me because i'm usually more of a fan of the british version of anything than the american version of anything or the or the original version of anything versus the remake but i actually think the american version of the office is is far superior and I watched a bit of something called College with Friends or College. It's a oh yeah, that's a new show on yeah. Netflix. I didn't know that had pr- premiered yet. So. Yeah, I you know I I don't know. It, it was it, I love Ke- uh, Michael Keenan Key Keel Peel Yeah Key Peel <laughs> Michael, Michael Keenan Key Nailed it whatever. <laughs> um, I loved Key and Peel, and I thought he was great on Mad TV when he was on Mad TV. Um, but they, they, it sounds like it feels like they're struggling too much. It, like this will probably even out over a couple more episodes. But the pilot was what felt like it was put, like they were trying too hard. Um, so I put it aside for a little. That's while. the sense that I got when watching the trailer as well. Like it was kind of like, oh, I like all these people. I like all these actors, and um, I would like to see them all as an ensemble. But then I was sort of like, what's the story here? What are they trying to tell? And I wasn't sure what the takeaways are. Just seemed yeah, it's uneven. basically ten years removed from college. We're going to get together again, like we did in college. And, and I like friends. that idea. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. a good idea. Well, you know what? I, I mean, obviously, comparisons are to Friends. The and I thought Friends out of the out of the gate was just brilliant and got even better over the years. Um, this one is a little uneven, and I'm I'm not in love with um, with it, but. Like I said, I think it'll even out uh, as it goes along. And then, as far as writing, uh, I actually didn't do that much writing this week on anything. Um, a couple of the projects that I was working on, one one of them didn't go south, but it went sideways. It went pear shaped, and so we're waiting for uh, a kind of a, a, a reboot of that. And then the other one is waiting on paperwork, so I'm not doing that. And then I haven't done much work on my Revolutionary War script, but I will. I'm going to write like a bandit this week uh, to get some pages done for delivery on Thursday. 
So, uh, so that's what I'm writing. That's Can I just take a moment and just ask you, Mark, what's going on with the book? Oh, God. <laughs> um, I need someone to kick my ass. I really do. Uh, if we have volunteers, yeah. please give us well, a I'm call. I'm sure there's two, two or three in this room who would definitely volunteer <laughs> just to kick my ass, period. Mm-hmm. Not about anything. I don't Nothing. even have an end Yeah, no motivation down. at all. Just, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, Wait, the book. Again, real quick, which one is the bad knee? <laughs> I'm asking, just curious. The, one, the one with the elastic bandage on it that makes me look like I'm 45,000 years old? Listeners, you have your target. The book is, the book is 95% done. The thing that's been hanging me up, and honestly, I'm going to probably ask you two to read, read it, is the proposal. Because I had heard that you can write a great book, but if you don't write a great proposal, it's not going to get that far. So I wrote the proposal. It didn't get that far. Uh, I rewrote the proposal. I simplified it, less self-aggrandizing, because somebody told me, oh, you got to talk about how professional you are and how you've been doing mm-hmm. this for you. It sounds like I'm just saying I'm the great – it sounds like I'm saying – Because this is an audio podcast, I just want the audience to know that uh, my, my mouth is wide open. Mark, <laughs> self-aggrandizing. I'm doing it again. It's just, everybody hey, at home, just do that open-mouthy thing. If there's one thing continue. I learned from Hollywood is if you don't say it, it doesn't exist. So you go in, you always be pitching. Folks, always be pitching. That's a, that's really on the table. But thank you for mentioning it. Thank you. I'm please, just I'm just going to keep reminding it please. until I can annoy people about telling them how they can get it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, please, please do, please do. If you'd like to know more about Mark's classes, visit plotpoints.com or scriptwritingclasses.org for more information. So, Mary Claire, uh, why don't you? Now that you're back from your uh, extended uh, vacation. Why don't you go ahead and tell us about this week in film history? I have no regrets about that four-week vacation. Um, But um, these film choices were inspired by Dunkirk's arrival in theaters this weekend. Um, Two films. One, The Dark Knight Rises, Mm. uh, premiered five years ago this week. Um, Another movie written by Christopher Nolan, although his brother did partner with him on this one, Jonathan Nolan. Uh, The third movie in the Nolan series of the Batman films, rounding out sort of the triptych or the trilogy so now we have the full saga of batman from sort of his childhood trauma all the way to some sort of grand conclusion but um it's funny because we're talking about this earlier but it's a little reminiscent of what we're dealing with kind of now in the world i mean it's sort of urban terrorism and the class warfare enveloping gotham and you know the infrastructure being kind of ripped apart by the villain which is bane um and, you know, Bruce Wayne, Batman, kind of reluctantly emerges from – he's been in seclusion for like 10 years since Harvey Dent, Two-Face's death, to deal with sort of the movement. Um, you know, the police think – you know, believe in the structure of Gotham and then Bane wants to burn it all down and then, you know, Batman saves the day. But um, but I think – I mean, it's a movie – it has its flaws, I think, but I think it's mostly because it's impossible to follow up The Dark Knight Rises. But I do think it's a fitting end. I rewatched it this week and it's still – Pretty compelling um, in terms of the villains and the new characters they introduce. Like Catwoman is in it as well, mm-hmm. as well as um, spoiler Ra Agul's um, daughter in disguise is sort of the one who puts the whole plot in motion. But um, is Catwoman? The, what's her name? Anne Hathaway. Yeah, Anne, mm-hmm. okay. I think she's great in that film. It's good in any film. She's a tremendous actress. Mm-hmm. So, so I didn't see that Batman. The last one I saw was Two Faced. The Dark Knight oh, okay. Rises, yeah. yeah, or excuse me, The Dark Knight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so and but I do like Nolan's take on. The, I do like just like J.J. Abrams. I'm a fan of his. I do like their their kind of reimagining. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was uh, what's his name, Christian the, Bale. The yeah, Christian Bale, mm-hmm. Batman. 
Yeah, which I thought he did a great job too. Um, good, I thought great casting. Yeah, yeah so yeah, much uh, more grounded. I'm just going to jump in for one moment. Uh, <laughs> not just because it makes for a good uh, good podcast, but I'm not a huge fan of. Uh, I, I I think any Batman is better than no Batman. I'm a I'm a pro Batman. Uh, yeah, I'm going to take a hard stance. I'm pro Batman, everybody. <laughs> uh, but I think those films. It, it's um, what do you think was a better Batman? Of all the Batmans ever? Yeah, what was your, what's your favorite Batman? Uh, gosh, I mean... Batman and Robin? <laughs> <laughs> okay, actually, n- no. <laughs> I was going to say, I was going to say, Mark, that's a tough question. Now, see, I, I think you have to examine each Batman on their own merit. No, hold on, wait a second. George Clooney, really good uh, Bruce Wayne, really bad Batman. Mm, yeah. uh, Val Kilmer, really interesting Bruce mm-hmm. Wayne, pretty good Batman, not a great movie. Um, well, do you like? Mm, let like me ask one. you this: Do you like the? Are you responding to the actors or to the stories? Well, the stories, um, the stories of that that uh, trilogy, the, the the Nolan trilogy, stories are pretty good. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of Christian Bale as Batman, and I mean everybody made the jokes about his voice, uh, but it it was. Um, I don't know. I, I, was, I was raised on the comic books, and so really knowing that there is a you were raised on the the dichotomy of well, there's Bruce Wayne and there's Batman. Now, is it Bruce Wayne pretending to be Batman or Batman pretending to be Bruce Wayne? And yeah, but are you a fan of the comic? The, the previous Frank Miller? Are you before pre Frank Miller or post Frank Miller? Uh, I, I was. I enjoyed pre Frank Miller, but Frank Miller for sure definitely was the mind blower. So mm-hmm. every every Batman that is not. Like Batman Begins, they should have just made Batman Year One, and and I mean, and 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 this is a phrase no one ever says. And Zack Snyder could have done it because he did he did uh, he did Watchmen slavishly, mm-hmm. obedient to the source material. Mm-hmm. If he could have just done that to Batman Year One, boom. And then something in the middle has to happen. And and to be honest, the middle uh, Batman uh, Nolan film is is very solid. But then the last film, uh, they just should have done. Uh, the Dark Knight Returns, uh, Frank Miller's book. It's it's still untouched. So many little bits have been cribbed and copied and tried to apply to other things, and it's just like just use the source material. And and again, when we when we were talking earlier about uh, you know people being able to accept politics in their film, it's like mm-hmm. the the Frank Miller Dark Knight Returns is is unabashedly anti Reagan, but um, you know can we handle that? Like I don't have to agree with that. Well, well, can I still in, accept that story? You're in you're in Hollywood, which is notoriously liberal. So I think you I think you'd be okay. And and I know the demographic is across the country, but um, well, anyway, I mean, I thought I loved, de- they are decent films. I was not a huge fan of Christian Bale as Batman. But I was. They're, they're good looking movies. I was, and I loved Heath Ledger as uh, mm-hmm. the Joker. I thought that I thought that was inspired. So yeah, he has an eye for good casting. I think, like he he really does. Um, even Tom Hardy, like our introduction to him was in Inception. That was a Nolan film. He was a small piece of that, and that and that really like sort of kicked off his career. Like I think he has a real eye for that. And people were not happy when Heath Ledger was casted for the right. Joker. Like they thought that was going to be a ridiculous choice, and he won genius. an Oscar for I it. I know, yeah. genius, both mm. po- uh, posthumously genius, mm-hmm. just genius. So. What else? Uh, so again, in the spirit of Dunkirk, another war film, uh, Saving Private Ryan premiered, uh, this week, 19 years ago, um, which is sort of synonymous with the genre. You know, it's considered by most to be one of the greatest war films ever made. That first half of the film is, you know, shows, shows the American soldiers landing on Omaha beach and going through just the heavy onslaught from the Germans and all the losses that they've suffered. But, 
Um, it was directed by Steven Spielberg, written by a screenwriter called or named Robert Rodat, who I wasn't familiar with, and I'm it doesn't look either. like he's written a number uh, uh, any uh, films maybe that have reached sort of the magnitude of this one. But it went on to win five Oscars, and it's. A great story, you know, these eight men saving the life of one for, you know, a mother that's lost three other sons and uh, really kind of pictures or details war as hell. Yeah, I didn't, I, I, one of my regrets movie-wise is that I didn't see that movie in the theater. Yeah, I know. Uh, there's a few of them like that, but that was, I was really, really, you know, it, it's surprising how how compelling that film is. War films used to be a big part of Hollywood. There's mm-hmm. a thousand, but they're like, Cowboy films, like yeah. westerns, you can only do one a generation, and and that's even a lot. So, um, well, one of the things about World War II movies, and, and I, this includes Dunkirk um, as well, is uh, it it seems like it was the last, certainly in Western culture, it was the last unambiguous war. Right. Mm-hmm. Like they were bad, right. we were good, and and we never tell a story that shows any sorts of shades of gray. And and for an audience, that's very comforting. It's just like, mm-hmm. wait, wait, are these the, Oh, they're the bad guys. Bad yeah, guys, bad yeah. guys, die, 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 die. And, and I, think, I think culturally we're, we're really like, you remember the good old days when you knew who the bad guys were? Um, well, uh, unless you're watching Inglorious Bastards and then American soldiers are serial killers and, and uh, torturers. Well, yes, but that's also, uh, that, that makes the audience very happy because once you feel you've got the moral high ground, mm-hmm. how, how despicable you get to be with your punishment is entirely up to you. Yeah, a lot of people like that. I don't agree with no, it. No, no. Hey, Rambo, go, Rambo redefined. I mean, that's why we love revenge flicks. It's like Taken. If you abduct that guy's daughter, he can burn down everything <laughs> to get it. <laughs> yeah. Because who's going to argue with that? <laughs> and and that was one of the things about like World War Two is like they're clearly bad. So anything we do to them is 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 just what we got to do. Yeah. No. No. You're right. Nazis were a great. That's it. You know. Yeah, we I mean, just don't have villains like that villain. anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Here's something to be taken out of context. Nazis get a bit of a bad deal because at least we all knew they were bad well they don't we, they were great villains they're still great villains i mean there's just like you're saying there's no ambiguity about a nazi now i i haven't i haven't seen uh i haven't seen dunkirk but i believe there's like almost no, nazis no mention in. well that i is, mean they allude to them but it's like yeah it's sort of odd because i mean you know who they're fighting obviously but you know usually in a script yeah you're really i mean you set up the villain and the hero and you sort of have that battle battle throughout it would really I mean, I think they say the word German once, but yeah, no mention yeah. of Nazis. You never see. Yeah, but they're being shelled constantly, right? Right, exactly. Thing, but you never, you never see, see. And I think that's really the, fascinating the because the that, I mean, that's that's it. That is how the Dunkirk conflict mm-hmm. was. It was it was not a face to face kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that is also fascinating in 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 with making this film uh, resonate with the audience. Is it's it's just a bad thing out there. And it doesn't have a face. It doesn't have a mustache or a beard. It doesn't look like someone you might know where you go, he's bad, but he looks like my Uncle Jeff. No, th- th- there's, this is just this, this specter. This is a dark cloud over the hill. I mm-hmm. think that makes it uh, a universally accessible film. Yeah. Thank, those are two great films, by the way, MC. Mm-hmm. And thank yeah. you for tying them into uh, this probably, week. Yeah, well, the, it's a box office. It's yeah. a huge box office hit. All Let's right, move on. on. Let's do some questions. Yeah, questions. Uh, we answers. have questions, and I have some answers. None of them, none of which should be listened to or followed. Have a question? Call us at nine one nine scripts or visit us at plotpoints.com. And you can leave a message, and your question may end up on our show. Okay, this week's Q&A, so I have a few questions. Mark, you ready? Yeah, I'm ready, yes. All right, let's go. So, number one, what 
or why I should say, does my dialogue sound stiff? Is there anything I can do to make it better? Well, there's a, that's a holistic, um, solution. First thing is to write more. Second thing is, which always helped me when I was just starting is to record my dialogue into a, a recorder and just listen to it. Uh, in intro class, we read our di- we read our submissions in order for the author to hear when it's going on too long, when it's stiff. If it's hard for somebody to to read uh, verbally, then it's going to be it's going to sound stiff. The number one problem with dialogue is dialogue always has to come organically from the character, not from the story. So if you're writing from the story standpoint, it's going to be stiff. If you're writing from the character standpoint, you may get the story stuff in, but you're also getting the character in. And that's where dialogue sounds most believable. If you have a person, you understand that person's background, you understand what their purpose is in the story, it'll be a much better uh, experience if you write from that character as opposed to from right. And honestly, most people get in the most trouble when they're writing dialogue that furthers the story. Because that does not come out of character, and mm-hmm. that's not organic. And so you, at one, one time, one point in time, mentioned in class that people should listen to reality shows, <laughs> which I, I guess I poo-pooed. But um, <laughs> I, I do agree with that uh, to a certain extent. The problem with that is that's, that's, art, that's as artificial as anything else, because those people are being coached, and they're, they're acting out for the sake. Trust me, that is not – that's reality I mean, yeah, show. they manufacture storylines yeah. and things like that, but there are still some real interactions that come from you okay. know, the relationships and, I, I and the settings that. that they have. And I would also say that the, the advantage with that is because they're not re- actors – Right. They don't know how to sell a line. Right. So if they're being fed something, and people it's going to sound clunky. And people realize that. Yeah, and but honestly, some of them are good. Don't last long. Yeah, I, I shouldn't. Con- <laughs> I don't know. I don't watch freaking reality shows. I just don't have a, 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 a heart. The heart for it. But um, I remember a teacher of mine used to watch Love Connection all the time, and uh, he said that he learned more about writing dialogue from Love Connection than he ever learned. I from believe it. Else. Yeah. But, but very I mean, much about picking up ladies. <laughs> <laughs> well, my point is, is if you're the dialogue should serve. The, the narrative. And if it's not serving the narrative, the characters, and all that other stuff, listening to somebody else's dialogue or listening to how that sounds is not going to help. Recorder won't help. None no. of it will help. But I think that's another great example of when you, you, you do well in a workshop because invariably, if you don't think your dialogue works, you're going to hear someone else's that does. Right. Mm-hmm. And you can't copy their dialogue, but you can try to figure out what are they doing right. that works mm-hmm. versus what am I doing that I'm not happy with. And I, I think... I mean, Sort of like a broken record. If if you're trapped in your own bubble, then you are going to come across this problem. Yeah. Well, I think people, sorry, no, think a lot of times think they have to tell the story via their dialogue right. as well. Yeah. So they try to, so it's so much exposition. It's like, why are these characters saying this? This isn't natural. This isn't something that would flow from a normal conversation. You have to be better in terms of elevating the story or getting out a different way via an action or a setting or whatnot. But yeah, you don't have to have your characters tell the story and nobody's going to do that yeah. in real life. I have to give Mary Claire a compliment. Her dialogue is exquisite. It really is good. She's one of the better, I think, uh, dialogue writers in the class. And the f- flip side of that is she can't plot worth a shit. So, uh, <laughs> so she ends up writing these great scenes that take her 10 yeah, hours, but they nowhere. only go five yeah. pages. So. I know. Okay, so just because I'm a child of divorce, what Daddy is saying is that Mommy's good at some things but not other things. But she's good at some things, right, Daddy? the fuck are you talking about? I'm saying when you put the rough with the smooth, make sure that the smooth is on top. She, I, no, no. I, I'll do what I want because it's uh, me. But uh, when you do it, you can do it the way you want it to be done, Toby. Uh, Thank you yeah. very much for 
for shitting all you over that, that comment. By the way. <laughs> I, I didn't. I completely agree with what you said. No, no, you don't. You just got to gotta micromanage nicer. it. So I said it the way I wanted to say it. <laughs> um, okay, great. So next, uh, next question. What is the difference between an agent and a manager? Uh, you wouldn't think there would be many, but there are tremendous differences. First of all, an agent has to be registered. Uh, a manager doesn't. Anybody can be a manager. I can be a manager. You know, Mary Claire can be a manager. The the difference, though, is an agent is – they both do the same thing, promote the writer or promote whoever. A manager is more likely to um, help you shape your career. So they may tell you, okay, for your next script, uh, why don't you write something like blank? And an agent is more likely to say, okay, send me your next script without giving you a direction. Um, they're both – I think the, all the agents I've had – I've never had a manager, but all the agents I've had have been fans of my writing. And I think that's extremely important um, because if they're fans of your writing, they're going to promote you when the, the opportunity occurs. Um, but they're, 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 they just have a different, slightly different approach. But either one is – I don't know if you need both. Um, but I think you need at least one or the other, in, especially in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. But the main difference is an agent can is only an agent, um, typically because they are uh, registered, and a manager can be anybody. And would you say is it easier or harder to write a script as an assignment? Um, uh, that's another really tricky question. I've written uh, I've written everything. That needs to be written as far as types of writing. I've written script doctor. I've written spec. I've written on assignment. Um, to me, it's easier to write on assignment for because like you would do well on assignment mm-hmm. because you would be given a lot of the parameters mm-hmm. and you would all all you would have to do is fill it in with right. good you writing. Right, get all of the framework, which right. a lot of times is the hard. And that is hard. Mm-hmm. Plus, there's not the expectation that you're you're not coming up with a concept. You're not coming up with a marketing strategy, which is all writers should participate in. You're just being told, please write this script about blank. However, um, the I mean, I've written assignments that have been massive failures, too, because they didn't live up to whoever wanted that assignment's expectations. Right, because I think sometimes they have, like, specific confines or a way they're, they're thinking through the story, and if it doesn't align with yours, then maybe right. it's harder to write within. Like, because I know there are people, because this is interesting, because Toby can speak to this as well, because we've been asked to write assignments for you before in class and intro, and, like, I always found those easier to write, but I know people who've had a harder time mm-hmm. with them as well, because they don't like working within those specific confines and like to have more fl- freedom when it comes to what type of story that they're telling or how they're utilizing their characters. But I think it can kind of go either way, depending on who you are as a writer. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a different skill set. But um, the, the thing with spec is you can write whatever you want, which is great. The problem is then everything has to come from you. Um, but if you're writing to assignment, there's a lot of things. You, you're, you're limited. You're in a box. But sometimes that box is very benign. Sometimes it's mm-hmm. a nice place to be. So yeah. In in the industry, are there writers that are perhaps known as being better uh, assignment writers versus spec? Is there would they, would somebody say like we need a we need a a good assignment writer versus uh, someone that's just going to come in and tell us some ideas? Well, I don't know about. That I don't have any specific examples, but I know there was a script doctor uh, who was – he. I think it was the guy who script doctored the third Indiana Jones movie back when Harrison Ford was doing it. And it was written by Jeffrey Bohm, but the script doctor came in and fixed a lot of it. He was making like four hundred grand an assignment. Mm-hmm. So he was definitely one of those sought-after people. 
As far as uh, on assignment, I think they trust people who have a track record. Like they'll bring in, they're more likely to bring in somebody who has experience and who has, they, they want, they're trying to mitigate the, the risk. That's the, that's the bottom line in Hollywood. We're spending $50 million on this movie. What's our best option of getting something out of it? So yes, there are. But I don't know, like uh, I know William Goldman did a lot of uh, ghost writing. Yeah. Um, most A-list writers are also uh, called in to do mm-hmm. to fix scripts. So if you see if you see written by blank, and then there's a second name, depending on if it's an ampersand or the word and, that implies that they brought somebody in uh, to fix it. And even if they wrote it on assignment, they'll fix it with the script doctor. But I don't know of anybody in Hollywood who's considered a better um, uh, assignment writer than a spec writer. Yeah, but uh, so I guess taking what you just said, y- you you would have to have some kind of track record to really be considered pretty much to be. So I, I guess going back to the question, which is easier, it's not necessarily something you'll professionally have a choice at until you've already done a pretty good job uh, writing in spec. You're not going to get those assignments. Well, I hate to invalidate your point because you're you're 99 percent correct. But my first my first paid assignment was an assignment it wasn't a spec script okay well i mean then how did that happen why would why would somebody mm -hmm, assign you that when really up until then all you'd written were a couple of limericks in a bathroom (laughs) um i don't know i honestly don't i came in with a great concept i came in with a killer pitch and they had a previous script of mine that they had read so they could see my my strengths but I was honestly lost. I was, it, was, it was one of the more um, difficult experiences of my life. And it was, they threw me in. You know, my dad taught me how to swim by throwing me in a lake. That's how I, and that's how I learned to swim. And that's how I learned how to write a script. Um, I knew everything I needed to know intellectually, but I had no idea of the uh, demands of production. So them trusting me, I still think, is an amazing, because uh, it was a $3 million film. And it was with a company that couldn't afford to lose $3 million. And so they basically took a flyer on me based on I, – I happen to think it's the, the creative director who's, who's been a friend of mine for years. Uh, she's got a great intuition. She discovered um, Quentin Tarantino, um, Mark Rocco. I uh, can't think of the, this guy's last name. But she's discovered quite a few writers, and so I think she has a sense of, that people can handle it. But it's really, it's really rare. Yeah. Well, I mean, so I guess then what was fascinating was you must have done really well in the room – for them to trust you yeah, and take that chance on you. That is encouraging. That is very good. Because, yeah. yeah, like I said, I'm more of a the, – the hard and fast is why would anybody give you an assignment if you haven't done anything? But you're saying, hey – It can happen. It can happen. And, it's, and, it, and, and very much based on your interpersonal skills because you didn't have a body of work to show. Well, I did have – again, they did read uh, – the, the script that broke me into the business was a science fiction script I wrote that never got – bought when it went around but it got a lot of notoriety mm-hmm. and the way that works is they start your agent starts at the top tier the 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 top tier companies then you go to the b's and the c's and the d's and so when i by the time i got to the c's uh the script had been around it had some good word of mouth there wasn't the blacklist at the time but it might have even been on the blacklist if it i it, it was a good script it was i did a great job with it but this company called me in and said we're not buying this script we don't do science fiction uh, but we liked a lot. We liked the writing, and we saw some some, some potential. So, so they did have a little bit of. But you know, there's no proof. I had nothing to show them. I had no movie to show them. I had no no. I had no IMDb. I had only been writing for a couple years. So, it was a, it was. I still think of that as probably the best 
the the highest point of my career was somebody hired me without yeah without any and like you said they were going to spend three million dollars and they didn't have it to lose they do not yeah so yeah I mean but well, also I can imagine very stressful since you obviously knew that the gamble yeah uh, no they put that pressure on you right away they make it clear and I, I got to tell you that the director they had originally tapped for the movie walked up to me at a party and said. I read your, your, your treatment because I had to write a treatment. It'll never work. You need to write something different. Uh, I'm going to send you four Dario Argento movies, and you're going to rewrite your script according to this guy. And I had no idea who Dario Argento was at so the time. So you translated them into Italian. So I pissed my <laughs> pants. and uh, then, uh, but, uh, but, So that's the kind of thing. That's, uh, again, if I had even had one or two assignments or, or mm-hmm. had sold some scripts, I would, but I didn't handle it very well because I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't yell or anything. I just told the film company... They want me to. Re- he wants me to write the script, and they said, "Nope, we're firing him." So, oh. <laughs> yeah. So the guy who directed guy. <laughs> the the guy who directed my first script was is is just a wonderful human being, Michael Schroeder, and I I credit him with an awful lot. He he got me through it. So, have a question? Call us at nine one nine scripts or visit us at plotpoints dot com. You can leave a message, and your question may end up on our show. There's a phrase I'm going to attribute to a producer friend. I won't name drop, but his initials are Clark Peterson. And he's done Monster, the Cahill Gibran film, and Ideal Home, a truly hilarious comedy starring Paul Rudd and Steve Grogan, to name a few. Clark and I worked together when he was at Image Organization. He's truly an amazing producer in person, and so is his wonderful wife, showrunner Stacey Rukeyser. Clark's phrase is, rise above the noise. This phrase makes so much sense if you work in Hollywood, but if you, al- you can also see it in force with anything on YouTube. Along with the video you're viewing, there are several suggesting- suggestions writing the sidebar of the video. Depending on how they're presented, how much they jibe with your interest, you might click on them and view them in addition to the video you came to YouTube to originally see. But how many weird people's appendages or top 10 things that sharks swallowed and then vomited or cute cats doing really cute and annoying things can you want to see? No one's appetite for anything, well, well, with the exception of porn, is unlimited. So after the first thousand cute cat videos, or to be more in line with what we're talking about, courtroom dramas, how can an audience possibly want to see more? That's where you have to rise above the noise, not only present, but past. You might argue, successfully, that television is still filled with crime dramas, procedurals, doctor shows, lawyer shows, and maybe even private detective shows. There's a reason for this. Any of those occupations come with built-in advantages. One, they're inherently dramatic, usually life and death stakes. Two, they most times involve a mystery, and being the curious monkeys we are, we have to find out who, what, when, where, why, or how. Three, you don't have to explain to an audience what a doctor, lawyer, cop, or investigator does. We all know. Four, you don't have to establish why they're doing what they're doing. Making an accountant investigate a murder is so much harder than doing the exact same thing to almost any of the professions I mentioned. Five, the stories you can tell are almost unlimited. So, given all this, there are always going to be cop, lawyer, doctor, or detective shows. Always. But how did some of these shows rise above the noise? Shows like True Detective, House MD, X-Files, Ally McBeal, or The Practice, to name a few, turned those genres on their heads. Up to that time, there was nothing like them. They redefined the genres. They rose above the noise. The absolute best redefinition... Rising above the noise I ever heard was Columbo, written by Levinson and Link. 
instead of who done it, that show was all about how done it. How would he catch the killers or, or killers? They showed you almost everything, the killer, the crime, and Columbo knows almost immediately who and when he arrives on the scene. The questions, I'm sorry, the questions Columbo asks are how and how do I prove it? Just brilliant. Are you tired of comic book movies yet? How many of those have written above the noise? I'd argue that Logan, perhaps Wonder Woman, maybe Deadpool are great examples of familiar genre entries that have been designed to be different while delivering on the genre conventions. Underworld, one of my favorite vampire films written, written by Kevin Grievous, did this to wonderful effect. He redesigned the mythology surrounding how werewolves and vampires interact brilliantly. So, rising above the noise, getting your work noticed is several fold in nature, but it all comes down to this one thing, concept, the pitch, sometimes called high concept or the elevator pitch. In other words, how can I interest a producer who has just seen it all, who has seen it all to read my script just based on a few sentences? For example, a brilliant detective who pretends to be slow in plotting solves murders in Southern California. The difference is the audience knows who did it and the detective knows it too and has to prove how they did it. Or a brilliant, notice the words brilliant will keep copping up, diagnostician only takes cases that no one else can solve. He's the Sherlock Holmes of the medical profession and he hates everyone. A passionate and brilliant investigator, FBI investigator, searches for answers on the dark and weird side of crime while pursuing information about his sister who he is convinced was kidnapped by aliens. A brilliant, there's that word again, young man, Raised by a hard-nosed cop, pretends to be psychic because he doesn't want to be a cop, but loves solving crimes using his intellect and intuition. By the way, that movie has been announced. That's Psych. I love Psych. Yeah, Psych <laughs> I'm a is big great. fan of Psych. <laughs> Writing one more cop show is not going to get you noticed, but even Blue Bloods, a fairly straightforward cop show, has at its core a wonderful twisty concept. Three generations of New York City cops in one family are featured. Blue Bloods, they bleed the color of their uniform, blue. Don't just write another cop show or vampire or zombie movie. Find something that elevates that film or series. It's your career, and it's incumbent upon you to rise above the noise. I mean, unless you don't really want to care to sell anything, right? As always, be inspired, do good work, rise above the noise. Well, on that wonderful piece of advice from Mark, I think that's going to wrap up the show for this week. I'd like to thank Mary Claire for coming back from her extended vacation. I'd like to thank Mark for his time, his wisdom, and his insight. I'd like to thank you guys for tuning in. And uh, please, if you hear something you like, tell your friends. And if you hear something you don't, shut up about it. We'll see you next time. Bye.